So good morning. If you guys would turn with me to Proverbs chapter 5. Once again, there should be a Bible next to you. If you don't have a Bible, this is our gift to you. Please take it home and read it. If you've been with us for the past few weeks, you'll know that we are in our study of the book of Proverbs. In the Old Testament era, God standardizes speaking to us in three ways. The priest taught his laws, the prophet declared his word, and the wise men gave his counsel. And here's why we need that third one. See, both the commands of the law and the proclamations of the prophets spread out before us the great truths of God and the grand narrative that makes sense of the mission of God. But we need more. Because even if we seek the holiness of God, and we do, and even if we are inspired by the visions of the prophets, and we are, we can still make a mess of our lives if we are unwise. So we are in need of wisdom today. And today I have the privilege of talking about how we are to navigate with wisdom sexual temptation. Okay, so if you'll turn with me once again, let's just put our finger on chapter 5. And as you find your way there, let me just say our society promotes a self-centered, pleasure-seeking perspective on the topic of sex. And you often hear, uh, if it feels good, just do it. Like, you do you, right? What makes you happy, like, go for it. And we've made feelings to be the ultimate authority of our lives so that when you have the slightest appearance of an objective standard of moral absolutes, you're labeled as a prude, you're called a party pooper, a wet blanket, you get the point, right? So what does the Bible have to say about sex? And that's important to us as Christians because we're called to be, we're called to humble ourselves under God's word and to trust not only that it is authoritative, but also that it is good and profitable for all of life. So what does the Bible say? It says, number one, God created sex. It says that sex is not a taboo. It is a, it is a gift that invites husbands and wives to be naked without shame, to be known and embraced, to be exposed and not rejected. You know, Proverbs, in the same chapter, if you turn to chapter 19, right, it tells the man to enjoy his wife, right? In the book of Song of Solomon, it unashamedly describes the pleasure and pursuit of sexual intimacy. Let me tell you, the Bible is not shy about sex, and there are examples that clearly show us that it is both for procreation and as well as for pleasure. But as we learn, and as our passage today will point out, God is deeply concerned that sex is not to be distorted from his original plan. So why is the Bible seemingly so liberating about sex within a marriage, but so limiting for every other setting? And you guys might have heard this, but sex kind of works like fire. In the fireplace, it's a source of warmth, and it keeps everyone in the house warm. So once again, when used properly, it could give you warmth, and it could also purify metals. On the other hand, if it is not contained properly, or if it's not used properly or handled with care, it can burn, it can leave permanent scars, and it can destroy. And so as the saying goes, keep the fire in the marital fireplace, and once it's there, stoke that fire as hot as you can go. So let's turn to uh, chapter 5, verse 1. We're going to read through verse 6. It says here, My son, be attentive to my wisdom, Incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion, and your lips may guard knowledge. 
For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, and sharp as the two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death, her steps follow the path to Sheol, and she does not ponder the, la- the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. Here, this, the wise father is saying, son, you're going to be tempted. You're walking into a world of sexual deception. And it will be offered to you as honey, and you will be attracted by it. But this honey will poison you. I want you to note the word honey in verse 3 as well as the word bitter in verse 4. You know, honey is sweet. So whatever leaves a bitter aftertaste in your mouth cannot be honey, right? And so the wise father is saying, don't be fooled. You know, today I don't need to make a case to prove that our society has a problem with lust and porn because we all know it, right? I would actually argue that we live in a society where porn is so rampant that the collective view of sex is that it's not that big of a deal. You know, young people are sexting, they're trading nude photos of each other. You know, casual sexual encounters like, um, or one-night stands are viewed as normal or even beneficial. You know, some of us in this room are actually wondering why anyone would make a judgment about consensual sexual behavior. I mean, if it's not hurting anybody else, why bug them, right? Or maybe it's due to the fact that we've been desensitized by the wealth of porn that is readily available to us. And already I can see some of the older people in this room, you're probably thinking, this generation, it's probably, it's getting worse by, by the generation and these millennials. And if you're 25 and under, you know, you might not know this, but if you wanted to get your hands on porn, it was much harder and there was a lot at stake. You would, it was an entire operation. Um, the process usually involved you and a buddy working in tandem. One would have to distract the, the guy working, the shopkeeper, while the other one would have to steal a magazine, put it in your shirt, and then you would have to run out. And, it was high stakes because if something went wrong, you would end up with a real awkward conversation between your parents and the police. But you know, times have changed. Today, all you need is a smartphone, right? And I would argue today that it's actually far more difficult to avoid porn, to avoid, to avoid porn than it is to find it. So in response to this worldview that says that sex isn't such a big deal, I mean, it's everywhere, right? What does our passage say to us when we are faced with sexual temptation. It says one word. Run. The Bible tells us to run, to flee. Right, let's read verse 8. This is really, this is key here. It says, keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. So when we're facing sexual temptation, whether it's through a sexual encounter or sexual material or explicit material, the Bible tells us to simply run away. I actually had a buddy in college who said, you know, I'm, I'm trying to build up tolerance so that I could better understand people who struggle with it. That's not the right way to go about this. The Bible simply says, flee, <laughs> flee from it. It doesn't work that way because, once again, in the New Testament, it says, flee from all sexual immorality because this sin is merciless. Let's read 9 through 11. It says, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, you groan. And when your flesh and body are consumed, you say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. Sorry, I went a little further, but 
it simply lays out for us the terrible consequences of this sin. So if this is what it looks like when sin is taken out of its proper place, I think it's very important for us to know what sex ought to look like in its proper place. So what does God say through the Bible about sex and how he designed it to be? The biblical sex ethic is for sex to take place and to be enjoyed within a covenantal relationship. So what is this covenantal relationship and what about it is so important? Now I want to share with you how one pastor described it. And I want you to keep in mind the three types of relationship that he discusses. He's going to say covenantal, legal, and emotional relationship. And he says, a covenant relationship is far more loving and intimate than just a legal relationship, but it's also far more binding and enduring than an emotional relationship. What we see here, he's making two comparisons. The first one, he's saying that a relationship built on a covenant is more loving and intimate than a relationship that exists because it's a legal contract. And one way we see this in the day-to-day is um, we see a small company, uh, and we understand that a small company will legally contract the vendor to provide services that they need. What do we call this? We call this a consumer relationship. This makes sense to us in business, but can you imagine if we had this mindset in a personal relationship? It would be terrible. Because in a consumer relationship, you have a relationship as long as the vendor, the other person, is giving you a product at a good price. You're going to stay with that vendor as long as you made a contract with them. But you're always looking for an upgrade. In other words, you're saying to your partner, you know, we have a relationship, but you better keep adjusting to me. Because if you don't meet my needs, I'm out. In a consumer relationship, you're always marketing. You're always performing because unless you meet the needs of your partner, they're going to leave you. But in a covenant, in a marriage relationship, you have a zone of safety. You could finally let your guards down. You could let your partner know about your insecurities. And you could finally be yourself. The second comparison that, that is made is that the covenant relationship is far more binding and enduring than just in an emotional relationship. You know, a lot of times we see couples get together, and when they break up, what do they say? We fell out of love, right? In other words, what they're trying to tell you is they no longer have feelings for each other. But what's ironic about covenant relationship is that when you're committed to a person in spite of your feelings, deeper feelings grow. So for example, the other covenant relationship besides a husband and a wife is between parents and children. And I already look across the room and I can see there are many parents in this room, but you don't have to be a parent to know that you get very little back, right? You <laughs> give, you give, you give, and you keep on giving. This is not a consumer relationship. And there are many of us in our 20s and 30s who are still receiving, receiving, and we have, have not given back yet. And so once again, as a parent, you're giving to your child, and you're giving, and you're investing in them, even when they act out and do things that are unlovable, yet you still love them. There's a deeper, richer kind of feeling because you're invested in them. 
in the same way a covenantal relationship between a husband and wife is committing to stay and invest in spite of feelings and in result, deeper feelings grow. When sex is experienced in the proper place, which is in the covenant marriage relationship where God has designed it to be, there is true freedom. And you might be asking, well, how can there be freedom when there's restriction, right? I want you to imagine with me if we didn't have any traffic lights, if we didn't have any stop signs in JP, right? You might be thinking, finally, I could drive home and I won't be stopped at every single intersection. I will have the freedom to go as fast as I want. But if you think about it, do you really have freedom to go as fast as you want, right? Probably not. You're probably going to be so paranoid, you're going to be slowing down at every intersection because there might be another car going crazy, right? And it's actually going to make you more nervous every time. In the same way, sex is a gift from God, and he gives it in the context of marriage because that covenant relationship lovingly provides a protection for us. I want you to know that there are people, I know that there are people in this room that have been wounded and scarred from previous relationships. And in many ways, these scars make us wonder if I'm disposable. It makes us think that I'm nothing but a mistake, but I'm, I'm but a mistake in somebody else's story, that I'm already tainted, and how can I be whole again and have a God-honoring relationship? You know, if that's you, I want you to know that, that there is a way back to healing. The Lord wants you to hear this message, that the path might seem humbling, but you don't have to despair. Healing and restoration can and will take place even in our lowest and darkest times. You know, we're going to read verses 12 through 14, and these are the last of our verses. And Bible scholars remind us to take notice of the change in tone in these last three verses. And that it's quite reminiscent of a character in Jesus' parable. So as we read it, I want you to find, just guess and try to see if it sounds like a story you might have heard about a young man who disgraced his father, squandered all he had, and found himself in the darkest, lowest point in his life. Verses 12 reads, And you say, How I hated discipline, and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. This person in this passage passage finally faces himself and he owns up to it. And if you're thinking of the prodigal son, it's true. It's very reminiscent of that story found in Luke 15. When we think about the story of Luke 15, the young man in Jesus' parable finds himself in a pig pen. He's hungry for food. He is missing his father and all that he has lovingly provided. I'm sure he too thought to himself, I'm at the brink of utter ruin. But he said, I have a father. I have a home. Why stay here? So he got up and he went home. The passage says that while he was still a long ways, the father saw him, ran to him, kissed him. And the father didn't shame him for his past, but rejoiced that his son had come home to him. You may feel that you are too far away from home and from God. Maybe you're worrying 
about how God will ever receive you again or how he might judge you or maybe you just feel uncomfortable talking to God. But remember that our God is greater than these fears. His love is greater and more powerful than what the world will say again, what the world will say about you and what you are saying about yourself. Like you have a home, and it's not just a home, but you have a loving father who's waiting in anticipation for your return into his arms. The world might say you don't belong there and that you aren't pure enough, that you're already tainted. But our God doesn't work that way. God, your heavenly father, is waiting to embrace you as you are here today. We can have full confidence that this is absolutely true, because it was made possible by the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, in closing, um, the thing about sexual sin is that in darkness, it grows. The way to get rid of it is to come alongside, is to have brothers and sisters come alongside you, to pray with you, to remind you, you need to preach the gospel back to yourself once again, because it's Jesus who comes into our life. And he shares our burdens with us. And you know what? We're not asking for second chances. We don't serve a God of second chances, right? Because what we need is not another chance. If we had another chance, we'd mess it up again, right? Because we do that over and over. What we need is a perfect substitute. And we have that in Jesus Christ. He is our substitute. Let us turn our gaze to Jesus. In him we have hope. In him we are given righteousness. Let's pray. Lord Father God, I pray uh, at this time, or as we um, have read in Proverbs, your word gives us wisdom in how to uh, deal with sexual temptation. Lord, I pray that sexual sins go so deep that, uh, Lord, that they wander in our minds and it's so hard to even turn to you, Lord. I pray that we are reminded that you are a loving God, that you pursue us, your grace abounds more, that there is forgiveness, that there is hope. But Father God, I pray that today that we would receive this message of grace and that we would turn our eyes to Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.